Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Talk Music Podcast. My name is Tom Tremuth, and I'm your host, along with super music fan and super music nerd, Andrew Schock. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. And yes, this is our first episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. looking around on the walls and I'm seeing a lot of gold records on the walls here and uh, and I guess I want to say Tom you must have been a, not been around a long time but I have that sounds <laughs> that doesn't sound right but you must have done 40 a lot plus years of really amazing stuff so maybe you could just start off tell me where did it all happen or when did it all start happening well thanks for, for thanks for noticing those gold albums on the wall andrew and i am missing a few by the way i think i've accumulated something like 10 or 12 multi-platinum albums well, so lot. that's pretty pretty okay in my books yes i have spent a majority of my music career in small and dark rooms which are called recording studios for those people that, that don't know. And I've spent um, time traveling around the world, and I was really fortunate that as I produced about 60 albums or so in my career, I was able to work with some great artists that earned me gold and platinum records. So, yes, when you're staring at the, at the wall there, I, I do the same thing sometimes. When I come into the basement and watch TV, I go, wow, did I really do that? You know, it just brings me back all the stories that uh, I've had in my career, including when I look at the wall and I see Honeymoon Suite and remember going to the Farmyard Studio in England to mix the album with a guy called Stephen Taylor and him all of a sudden mixing the record and bringing it back home to, to Warner Canada. And it ended up being, ironically, the biggest album of my career that spawned five top 10 singles. And the record is now, believe it or not, sold around 500,000 copies in Canada. So, And you still hear it today on the radio. And you still hear time. it today. The song New Girl all Now is time, still... Yeah. All, all over the place. So anyway, back to um, the rest of my career. So I will go more into detail later about that. But before I do, I would still like to introduce Andrew, but get a little bit more specific. So Andrew, tell me a little bit about yourself, why I consider you a walking encyclopedia and so knowledgeable about music and a super fan. Well, hey, thanks uh, for those accolades. I think it comes from being just a, a hardcore music fan since I was a little kid. You know, it started off with hanging out in record stores, uh, ranging from Sam's to Vortex, the record peddler, and then going to shows all the time, and then uh, reading books and articles. And, uh, you know, I'm probably still one of those uh, very rare people that still buys and, you know, CDs and DVDs. You love physical. I know, I know, I, I still do. You know, that Keith... You're the only one I know. <laughs> when those Keith Richards uh, reissues came out, and I had to have a copy, you know, my, my original copy. Do you still have a copy. CD player? Do you still play CDs too? I play it through my computer. The CD player is, is no longer in the household. Okay. We will talk further about vinyl at some point in one of the episodes, but wow, has it ever taken off? So I know, I think you buy vinyl, don't you? I have some. No, I don't buy vinyl, but uh, someone in my family does. Okay. So there is a connection there. Got it. You got know, it. I've, I've got pretty much everything except for cassettes and eight tracks. I've okay. got everything covered. Well, know? that's another subject we can get into. Yes, it has Spotify and all the streaming services. What what damage has that done to, to the industry? Because obviously there's a lot of great things about streaming, you, you know, the fact that it's portable. You well, the access is fantastic. The access is incredible. The access but, is great. The negative part of that is, for example, bands no longer can sell CDs at shows. I yeah. just went to a concert recently 
and there was no merch. CDs in general, um, people aren't playing them. You, you know, stores are not carrying them. But let, let me give you a lot of credit on a couple of other music-related subjects. You're probably the only one I know who's read probably every autobiography known to mankind about a musician. <laughs> <laughs> I work hard at these things. <laughs> I have to spend a lot of time. As soon as I think I have something I've, I've, I've read, you always go, oh, no, I finished that last week. I'm like, yeah. what? It just came out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, some of them are really good and some of them aren't. And you know, but you got to read them all, you know. So we'll definitely get into that at some point. Also, documentaries. You, 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 you I don't know. Are you up all night? Are you, you're watching yeah, 24 yeah. hours a day or what? I've been, uh, you know, I, I slave away, uh, you know, researching, you know, what are the new ones coming out? Just uh, today, I was uh, watching the Alanis Morissette one about... Uh, oh, really? Ragged, I think it was called. So, you know, I'm going to dive into that when I get back okay. home. Okay. Yeah. It's hard for me to stump you on something that... It's either, you know, uh, a book, a, a movie, a documentary, a concert. So that's why I think this is going to work really well. So for everybody listening, we're going to act as filters. And as you can see, one of us has been in the business their entire life and the other one's been a super fan their entire life. So I think there could be a really interesting conversation go down here. I remember you telling me once that you actually had an album out, so you were on the other side of the glass. So you were actually an aspiring rock and roll musician, and you put out an album that was pretty damn spectacular. So I want well, you thank to you for tell those, me uh, those kind, a little bit about that. Those kind words. Um, so the band was called True Myth, which I didn't come up with a name, or did I? I mean, maybe I did. <laughs> and it, it is based on my last name. And um, I was the leader. I put it together with my very close friend, Gary Furness, who's still my very close friend. And um, there's a tremendous amount of detail on how this happened. And I'm just trying to go way, way back because we're talking about 1979, roughly, when this whole thing started. And the reason it started was I was at Fanshawe College and that was the first college of its kind in the entire world to offer courses in production and recording, believe it or not. And I'm not talking London, England, I'm talking London, Ontario. So what happened is this course opened up and all the musicians from across the globe started coming to this place, London, Ontario. And after spending three years there in the third year, I came up with the idea of putting together a group and competing with bands like Yes, General Giant, which were yeah, sort but of yes, by that time were already massive. Oh, massive! No, massive, I mean, massive, I almost massive. think they've they had reached their crescendo and were sort of were coming on the down streak. Well, precisely, but I felt like there was room for another because they were playing twenty thousand seat arenas and selling them out easily. Well, Genesis was massive at that time. Sure. In the late seventies, they were sure. their biggest. You know, sure, but that was the era of also. Like I say, prog rock was generally extremely popular around the world. So that's the direction I went in. I'm a classically trained pianist. So do See, that my... I never knew about you. Yes, yes. I have my grade eight and grade two theory. I can read music. I'm... Well, the introduction is some of those true myth tunes I thought was pretty uh, pretty intense. Intense, yes. But yes, yeah, so I, I, I did study classical. And when I was in Fanshawe, I wanted to compete and try to be the best in the world in a prog rock group. So I decided to put together a band. We got together with two of your old bandmates, Tom, to ask what those days were like. So here's the bassist, Steve McKenna. 
I don't know about Tony and the others, but as far as I was concerned, you know, I was working a way to pay rent and eat and rehearse. That was it. That's all we did. As far as early rehearsals, Tom, being the guy he is, he can finagle. Lorik knows anything he needs. And the four of us, prior to moving to Toronto, started writing and rehearsing in these <laughs> odd places. Uh, one of them was an outbuilding at a farm. It was heated by one of those workshop things that glows red in the ceiling. Then we all packed up our bags and Tom said, let's move to Toronto, start a band and get a record deal. We said, yeah, sure. Eventually, we all moved to Toronto and I spent two years rehearsing. Two years. Uh, two years rehearsing in my parents' basement and eventually ended up with a deal with Warner Brothers. And this was one of the ways that we wanted to set ourselves apart from everybody else in the world was to make a digital recording because nobody had made one yet and our A&R director, Gary Muth, organized it. Can you tell us about that epic recording session and, and why was it significant historically and why use Soundstream, for example? Well, if you have that act, what you try and do is uh, see how can you set them apart from uh, the competition. And I knew that the band was musically proficient and Tom and Gary had experience from Fanshawe in doing recordings. So that uh, we had to do something that was technically superior. And just when I was thinking of trying to get a hookup for them, I read an article about Dr. Tom Stockham and his Soundstream project, which was uh, basically the first uh, digital recording. Uh, he had this system that he put together and he had a prototype that uh, seemed to work that he'd done with uh, some classical artists. So uh, I just called him up out of the blue and uh, said, so what do you think are the uh, commercial possibilities of this for a major label? And we just talked about it. And he said, well, there are limitations. The biggest one being that it's only two track at this point. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. That means that we have to record the whole thing live. And I thought, well, True Myth are a band that are technically proficient enough to pull this off. And I said, well, you know, look, this is a long shot to do this, two-track live and everything. So why don't we get a professional producer involved and take it into a world-class recording facility? Enter Jack Richardson and Soundstage Studios. Jack basically took care of the technical production, and Tom took care of the arrangements and the performance side of things. And uh, it worked very well. We had to practice two years in order to pull off this digital recording. That's, that's my first question, is how did you, two years, normally after six months, you would have had people sort of shaking their heads going, okay. We were. Okay. We were. <laughs> were you playing live shows? Were you uh, playing around no, town? No, this because was all nobody in... would book us because it was prog rock and nobody knew who we were. No. Yeah, but prog rock was sort of, you know, I, I think in the early 70s, you know, as a, that's the thing the Sex Pistols railed against was prog rock. But they certainly I think did. prog rock by the late 70s had become more focused and was more radio friendly. I mean, I thought your album was, uh, a lot of those songs hit on me more Steely Dan than they did Yes. Oh, that's wild. I've never you know. heard that before. And then you said it was recorded digitally. I mean, what? when I think of digitally, I think of MP3s, I think of you know online services and whatnot. What does it mean to record an album digitally? Are you talking digitally versus analog, tape versus, you know, like hard drives? Or what, what exactly are you talking about? In that 
time era, everything was being recorded on analog tape. Every album from Elvis Presley up to the Beatles and up till we recorded, everything was on a tape. And that tape would be on a reel. <laughs> and these reels would go around and round on a machine. Now, guess what? The top end would fall off. So after thousands of plays of a tape, somebody would be in the control room and going, geez, you know, my drum sounded so much better a week ago. And geez, I can't, I can't hear my, the top end of Is my guitar Is that because anymore. of overdubbing and constant? Well, it's because the dioxide on the tape literally falls off. Literally, oh it's falling off. So when digital came, just imagine recording and playing back what you just recorded. And it sounds the same as you just recorded, but also a year later, it sounds exactly how you recorded. Even if you would have played that tape over a million times, it still would sound exactly the same. So you couldn't do that before. So hence, you're hearing all sorts of sonic detail in a digital recording, you would never ever hear on an analog recording. You just, it doesn't reproduce it. But what equipment did you have for well, that? I mean, I'm. Well, this is where it got interesting is Gary Muth, who signed the band, the Warner Brothers record uh, A&R person, came up with the idea to record us live. And he had a connection with a company in Salt Lake City called Soundstream. So he said, guys, hey, I'm going to bring up Soundstream to record you guys, but you're going to hate me for this. You're going to have to record it live off the floor. And I said, are you crazy? <laughs> live off the floor, I said, how many chances do we get to re-record it? He goes, none. You have to set up everything like you're playing. Top to bottom, every song. Top to every song, and you're going to get like four or five seconds in between to change your settings on your on your instruments. So you had to do song after song after song after song. Yeah, and a whole side. No, a whole side at once. Song without wow. making an error. Now, if you listen to the album carefully, oh yeah, there's some errors on there, but thankfully they're not. I didn't hear any. I mean, it <laughs> sounded pretty pretty darn good to me. Well, I can hear a wow. few things here and there. And, and I know, listen. but it sounded, you know, there's always. I know, know, but I'm being super picky. I couldn't make any mistakes. Yes, I made a few, but they were pretty few. So was this Gary's did. idea or Gary Muth's idea? So it was all idea. his idea. His idea. You willingly went along, saying, "Okay, this this could take us between." Well, we also felt like we were going to be making history, and we did. I'm very proud of that moment in my life because that also catapulted my career as a producer because I got to co-produce the album with Jack Richardson, who was at that time one of the top producers in the world. He had, you know, hits with Bob Seger with Night Moves and uh Those which was a top, top ten song and with all the guests who records and he he became our co producer. So I was really um privileged to be working with this guy, Jack Richardson. So here's my my friend Gary and I, and I'm probably nineteen, twenty, whatever, something like that, age, and I'm like, Wow, is this for real? I'm working with one of the top producers in the world and he's analyzing all my keyboards and telling me sort of do this, do that, wow. blah blah blah. So that was an incredible era. Tom, your friend and co-producer at the time was Gary Furness. I know you caught up with Gary recently, so let's hear what he had to say. Uh, he was like the hottest, as you know, the hottest producer in the world at the time doing... He know, was. Like a, Bob, well, he, was uh, he just finished Night Moves or something and uh, Bob Seeker, right? He, he, was, he was working on Night Moves when I met him. Yeah. Um, 
He he was. He was working on Night Moves, and he showed me the piano in his office. Said, "Yeah, we're working on." That's where Night Moves was like brought out in his office in that little upright piano. Yep. And they were recording it next door in the studio. Anyhow, he was so hot. He was in L.A. all the time. Yeah. New York and L.A. So we could never get him because he was out of town. Anyhow, he calls me back. I get him, and he says, "Can you be here tomorrow?" The interesting thing about that was when we got in with Jack, and Jack started. You know, was a real mentor for us. Sweetheart man. He sure was. And very sharing with his time and mm -hmm. everything, all his knowledge. Yep. We got to work with Jim Frank, who was a great engineer there. He was. And Jim and all of us, we, you and I did demos. We made some records there with, with Jim. And then when Bob did come in to do Gabriel's first album, solo record, you're right. You, I didn't talk to Bob. You may have. But I was on the floor with, uh, uh, with some of the musicians talking at the time. Robert Fripp, actually. Right. That's right. So. Yeah, so that must be how it happened for me. Is I must have went there, and maybe I, you were talking to to somebody else there, and um, I remember walking into the control room, and the lights were all off, and I saw yep. Peter Gabriel sitting on a stool yep. out in the middle of the recording area with a light bulb over his head, and he yeah. was bald. I think that's when they kicked it. I think that's when they were starting to kick us out, saying, "Hey, it's time." Yeah, to, that, well, pretty well. Under. I mean, I remember <laughs> I remember having to you know duck down and be really low on the floor, and uh, but it was just sort of a a wild experience, me being even a fan of Genesis, well, the both of us actually, because we, yeah. we, we love prog rock. So I, that was kind of a, a defining moment for me where I, I thought to myself, wow, is somebody actually making money doing this? Like, is this really a job? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's, hard, it's hard work, they make it look easy, but it's hard work. Well, of course it is. But I mean, you know, yeah. we were young kids at that time, but um, yeah. it was certainly, certainly uh, uh, an incredible thrill. And um, I mean, that happened a lot. You know, we were in there one day making some of our demos. I don't know if you recall this or not, but I remember sitting in Jack's producer's chair. Yeah. Jack was out of town, but we mm -hmm. had, it was our time for our session. Yeah. And I was sitting there and I looked over to my right and we're doing some work and I go, geez, that guy looks familiar at the door. It's George Martin. I don't remember he, that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. He came in there in Toronto and they were like checking all the studios out and he happened to come by Nimbus 9 that day to check out the studio. And I got, oh my God, I better get up. I'm in a, sitting in the producer's chair. I got caught. <laughs> Did you actually say hi to him? Oh yeah. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he says, oh, play a little bit. So we played a little bit or whatever it was. And he says, oh, it sounds You hung out with on. George Martin when you never told me? Garrett, I, don't, I forgot well, that story. <laughs> it was like 30 seconds. It that's, wasn't a hang. It wasn't fantastic. a hang. It was like- That's even better than in. Fripp and Gabriel. That's that's like the ultimate. Well, I just remember that because he was such a- <laughs> gentleman and it was like i can't as soon as you see that man's face well, like jack like jack was an incredible gentleman yeah. as, you, as you said oh, you yeah. know tony cook was the true myth guitarist one thing i remember with jack as a matter of fact that he was almost adamant at not recording the mellotron it was like what is this thing you know it's <laughs> like no i refuse to record that you know but he of course he did and it, it turned out really well but, you remember uh, that it broke again, and fortunately, Ian Thomas has had quite a bit of experience fixing his, so he took it apart, fixed whatever needed to be fixed, put it back together. <laughs> well, the cool thing about the Mellotron was that, that, that they were tape loops yeah. of different stringed instruments, and you know, it, it kind of rotated through the thing and played uh, like a cassette player or something like that, you know. Only three to four seconds, because the tape would run up and then fall back down with right. the weight on it. So yeah. you had to change your fingering. And when we did the live showcase, Tom's hands were busy. So he had me play the Mellotron backwards because I was beside him and 
of course, Smellotron was facing him. So there was a part he wanted strings. And it's like, so, okay, do this. Tom, why don't you introduce us a track from the big True Myth intro album? Okay. Here's a song called Time and Time Again, which opens up side two of the True Myth album. John had a question he couldn't surpass About the gathering future and the vanishing past So for the debut recording you guys did, it, you recorded it digitally. So what were your experiences recording all the music live off the floor with no overdubs? I mean, it must have been nerve-wracking, I mean, to, to do the whole thing right the way through. You know, we had done so many rehearsals up until that point, you know, re- kind of re refiguring the songs and, and re- rearranging them and, and everything else that like any any kind of live performance, yes, you you've got that edge going on. You you know you don't want to mess it up. But uh, for me, it wasn't particularly nerve wracking. We'd rehearsed the song so many times, and we're so familiar with the material that uh, it was just a, a matter of actually getting and doing it. I got to put this guitar down, pick up another one right here, and continue. Yeah. You know, because this band was complex in the sense of arrangements and synths and all that, mellotrons and all that kind of stuff. Yep. When they heard about the digital stuff, it's like, oh, you only have to do one song and you can stop the digital tape and they can piece the record together by songs. Mm-hmm. So I remember that was the reason for doing Soundstream, the digital system. But because of that, it's still two tracks. So you guys had to play live off the floor, which meant you had a really good engineer, good sound, all that, plus great players, which you guys were. But you're right, we brought in other people like Paul Harford from Lighthouse. He did all the string arrangements That's with right. you. That's right. So you did a showcase for Atlantic U.S. and things didn't go quite as you expected. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on that? Well, it was John Kalotner from Atlantic and uh, he came up and uh, once again, Tom and Gary managed to somehow 
use a theater space. I think Tom explained it as, well, they weren't using it that day anyway, so they let us. And the guy who does lights there was, I guess, doing some maintenance or stuff, and he saw us rehearsing, so, you know, just getting ready for the show. He liked us so much, he set up a fantastic light show. So there was mm -hmm. three people in the audience, as far as we know. There was uh, John Kalotner, Gary Muth, and, uh, oh, I can't remember who the, the third person was. So were we scared? Sure, we were scared shitless. But we also knew that we had rehearsed so much that we could pull it off. So we did. He came to us and he said, listen, you know, you're the best act I've seen in the whole year. You guys could be the next yes. And I want to see if I can sign you to Atlantic so we can release the album in the U.S. and put a bunch of money behind it. So he went back, ended up having a meeting with the president of Atlantic at that time, whose name was Jerry Greenberg. And I still remember the call from Gary Muth who had signed us where he got me on the phone and he just said, hey, I still believe in the record. We've done everything right. Jerry Greenberg does not hear a single. He doesn't think you have the song like Yes does called, you know, Roundabout at that time was, had been a big hit for, for Yes. He didn't think we had it. So I know that I was so shocked that I, I, I took me a long time to recover. I probably went numb. I had put everything I had into it 150%. And I just had to go, okay, at least somebody's releasing the record around the world. Thank God for that. Maybe I'll eventually get around to still making a career in music. And I was fortunate that I did. I just had to put it aside, hold my head up and, and go and move forward and go, okay, I give it my best shot. Why didn't the album get picked up in the U.S.? It got picked up everywhere else except for the U.S. Well, you know, um, music is time-dated. When we started the project, Truman's music was uh, commercially viable. By the time the uh, album hit the market, tastes had changed. You know, you have to remember that uh, uh, when we started this, it was, what, 77, 78, something like that. And uh, uh, by the time it came out, it was uh, middle of 79. And punk had already been around for three years. Disco was big. And the new wave bands were starting in England. All of a sudden, uh, prog rock was old hat. You know, it was yesterday's music. So it made it very hard to get anything happening. But, you know, it also didn't help that uh, they didn't have management and also didn't tour a live show. I mean, uh, this was a time when the way you broke acts was putting them on the road. You uh, uh, had them open up for known acts, uh, and they'd go on a 40-day tour uh, all over North America. Well, True Myth never played live. And oh, like wow. I said, they didn't have any management. Not that they weren't looking, but they didn't have it for whatever reason. So, I mean, it, the odds are against them at that point. So it must be very exciting for you all that were involved in the making of this album to finally to be able to release it to the world via streaming. Well, it is definitely. I'm glad that it's available because uh, fans of prog rock can actually discover one of these long lost gems. I mean, it's as good as anything out there, uh, but it just never got the chance to be heard uh, properly. And I think that uh, fans of prog rock now go through uh, Spotify and uh, Apple Music and uh, the streaming services looking for things like this. And also because it's there, a younger generation can actually be exposed to it. Uh, as far as not getting signed, disappointing, yes. 
uh, with age and wisdom uh, now gathered behind me, <laughs> it might have driven us insane to, like many young bands, uh, just be sent to LA to record. And I'm not, I'm not sure what would have happened. But anyway, it would have been nice to try. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I know. It, it for, for me, it was a little disappointing, but it wasn't the end of the world, you know. And and uh, uh, it, just the opportunity to to do that was really amazing. Tom, very very resourceful young man. Uh, oh, yeah. well, maybe not so young anymore. But uh. <laughs> <laughs> so how, do you, how do you feel now about the whole True Myth experience all these years later? <sighs> It, Sorry, did you say a hundred years later? <laughs> <laughs> it was a phenomenally creative and focused time. After having played in a lot of bar bands after that, I wondered if I should have done that a lot before. I did it a bit for a couple of years in Ottawa, but uh, I learned a lot doing the True Myth Project. And as Tony's mentioned before, you know, it was the creativity there. It was it was boundless. I, I remember coming in one day with, with a really neat lick and what I thought was a force. And, before, you know, within, I think, half an hour, we had Stalemate down, a, a mm-hmm. song that did not make the album, but that's the way it was. Somebody would come in with something and right, look right. at this. Oh, that's neat. Bang, bang, no, bang. I, boom, I, I, I remember you walking through the front door and, and you were singing a particular line, which actually turned out to be a, a whole other song, you know, and it's just... Uh, <laughs> That's how it went, and we all kind of bounced ideas off one another, and and uh, it was yeah truly a phenomenal time for me creatively and, and musically. Steve McKenna went on to do a few hit albums and write more songs. He played in every kind of band, ranging from jazz to R and B and even country. Tony Cook kept playing too. When we caught up with him, he was in Georgia prepping for a show with Zakaya Hooker, the daughter of none other than blues legend John Lee Hooker. Gary Muth went on to hold management positions with a bunch of major music labels. He recorded artists we all know like the Rolling Stones, Rod Stewart, Peter Gabriel, and Black Sabbath. His concerts included The Police and Talking Heads and even a stage musical called Napoleon. Gary co-founded Iceberg Media, one of the world's first internet major broadcasters, and he helped create worldwide standards. When I finished it, I was really proud of the album, and I just finished doing a, an album with Rod Stewart, and uh, Tom Dowd was the producer, and I called Tom all excited. I said, Tom, Tom, you won't believe it. I just did the first rock digital album. He says, what's digital recording? <laughs> you know, and I had to explain to Tom Dowd <laughs> what digital recording is all about. And he said, really? Well, send it to me, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he didn't believe that uh, something that innovative would come out of Canada. Gary Furness went on to a long career in music, eventually becoming president of Sony Music Publishing Canada. Well, you know, you know what, you know what really worked well for us is you were certainly very tech oriented, and you know, I was concentrating on True Myth and writing the songs and you know whatever, helping with the arrangements and stuff. So I thought we were a fantastic combination where. I would get stuck all the time, you know, with technical stuff, and you would just go, hey, get out of my way. Thank you for uh, participating here, Gary. Appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. And good luck with it, because uh, a lot of people need to hear it. The 
Besides doing more production work, Tom went on to release more than 60 albums worldwide on his hypnotic label. He managed many artists, including the famous Canadian act Honeymoon Suite, who still to this day gets lots of radio play. He became a booking agent and even taught music industry contracts. As well, he enjoyed his time as the co-managing director of the indie label Frostbite, which was affiliated with Universal. Thank you very much for listening to the Talk Music Podcast. My name is Tom Tremuth, and we're going to end our first episode with a selection called Reach for the Heavens. <laughs>